And as we do come to the preaching of God's word this morning, I'd invite you to turn to the Gospel of John. We're picking up where we left off last Lord's Day, and we are in John chapter 3. We have begun looking at that account of Jesus's interaction with Nicodemus, that very intimate account where one of the foremost leaders of Israel have, have come to the Savior and has, has asked him questions, and, and Jesus responds by telling him, you, you, you can't understand what I'm saying unless you're born again. And Nicodemus doesn't understand, and, and he's frustrated. And Jesus again says to him, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot see the spiritual things of the kingdom of God. And then Jesus went on to talk about the Spirit coming and, and the Spirit sovereignly moving like the wind coming. We don't know where it comes from. We don't know where it's going. But, but everyone who ultimately is born of the Spirit of God comes to know God uh, by the sovereign working of the Spirit. And we are continuing on in that account this morning. In John chapter 3, we're going to begin in verse 13. And we're going to read down to verse 21, John 3, 13 to 21. And as usual, I know you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me this morning. And now, as Jesus continues that conversation with Nicodemus, he says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I grew up in the early 80s watching uh, NFL games with my dad. It was a regular occurrence in our home, and if you were alive in the 80s, it's so weird to say that now, but if you were alive in the 80s and you watched NFL in the 80s, maybe even into the early 90s as as, as the television, uh, as the camera would scan the crowds and they'd get close to the end zone, they'd suddenly stop and zoom in and there it was, the end zone verse, John 3:16, the end zone verse. Some guy would be holding up a sign saying John 3:16, and every Christian watching the NFL games, w they were excited, they were happy. Yes, John 3:16 is on TV, in this game. And, and we should be excited about that. John 3.16 is one of the greatest 
verses in the Bible. It is the gospel in a nutshell. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But one of the weaknesses of someone holding up a, a sign that says John 3.16 is that we don't understand the context in which that verse comes and we don't understand really how to understand it properly if we take it out of its context in which we're looking at this morning. Now, as I said, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and he's explaining that there's nothing that a man can do to, to bring himself from spiritual death to spiritual life. He's told him it's absolutely impossible. There's, essentially, Jesus says there's nothing you can do. And he says the spirit must come, the spirit must regenerate, the spirit mu must work. And, and, then, and then notice Jesus sort of shifts in verse 13, and he begins to speak about himself, and he begins to speak about his saving work, and then he begins to give a free offer of the gospel. And what I want us to consider this morning as we look at this passage and we consider especially John 3.16 in light of the context in which we find it, I want us to consider three things as we look at the Son of Man being lifted up. Because that's, that's at the center of this. At the center of what Jesus teaches is, is not really John 3.16. At the center is Jesus saying the Son of Man must be lifted up that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so I want us to consider these three things. First, the provision of the Son lifted up. And then I want us to consider the offer of the Son lifted up. And then I want us to consider the result of the Son lifted up. The provision, the offer, and the result. Well, uh, notice there in verse 13, Jesus has already told Nicodemus that everything he's telling him is heavenly in nature, and he says, no one can ascend to heaven but the one who first descended. He's saying, I came down from above. That will be a common theme throughout John's gospel. When, when Jesus speaks of himself, he says, I came from the bosom of the Father. I speak what I've heard. I, I'm going back to the Father. I've come from heaven. And, and so everything Jesus is teaching is heavenly in nature. And he's going to contrast those things, the earthly and the heavenly, when he says things like, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Or when he talks about eternal life, and he talks about eternal death, when he talks about light, and he talks about darkness, He's contrasting the heavenly things with the earthly things. And he begins by introducing the provision, the solution. How, and here's the question, if a man or a woman, a boy and a girl, could not do anything for himself or herself to bring themselves from spiritual death to spiritual life, how then does it happen? That's what Jesus is answering. And he's saying, here's the provision. I am the son of man. I am the one who was in heaven. I came down from heaven. I'm going to be lifted up, and then I'm going to be exalted back to heaven. And, and so the problem, the great problem, how can, can sinners who are so irremediably hardened in their sin by nature, how can they be changed? Well, it's, it's going to take the saving work of the son of man. He is the provision. Um, 
Now, Jesus does something very interesting here. Notice verse 14, and I want us to camp out here for a little while. Notice verse 14. Jesus says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, Jesus understands the Old Testament better than anyone. Not because he gets it by osmosis as God, but because as man he studied it with a pure and holy heart. He grew in wisdom and knowledge. He read the Old Testament, and in reading the Old Testament, Jesus knew that it was not just written about him, but it was written to him, and it's written about him for us. So when Jesus reads the Old Testament, he wasn't reading it thinking, what, what, what is God saying to other people first and foremost? What is God saying about moral reform? What is God saying about living holy lives? He understands that the Old Testament's about him so much so, and this is remarkable, when the Savior read Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9, that account where Israel's in the wilderness and they're grumbling against God and they're complaining against God and they say, why did you bring us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? They say there's no food, no water. We loathe this worthless food. They are complaining against God. They are complaining against God's kindness and goodness. They're complaining against the leader that God appointed for them. And as they are, as they are acting out in, in rebellion, God God's wrath breaks out, and he sends venomous snakes that begin biting the people and killing the people. And the people, like they always do, cry out to God. And they cry out to Moses and say, cry out to God for us. And Moses goes to the Lord, and the Lord says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to, to make a bronze serpent, and I want you to put it on a pole. And I assume that pole was really high. And, and I want you to hold that bronze serpent up, and if anybody's bitten by a venomous serpent, when, when they look at that, they'll be healed. And Jesus understands that that's about him. He gets typology. He understands he is the serpent on the pole. Now, it's, it's, it's odd. If it's not odd to you, I don't know. It's odd. Why would the Bible liken Jesus to a serpent? Um, you know, I think there are many answers to that. One is that Israel is sinning in the wilderness, and as they're sinning, and, and as God's wrath and judgment is coming on them for their rebellion, they, they are being reminded of, of that old serpent who brought sin and rebellion into this world. You see, God is reminding them of the fall. He's reminding them of how sin came into the world, and, and the venomous serpents are to remind them, and the serpent on the pole is to remind them. And, and they're being reminded that their sin is deadly. They're being reminded that what happens to them with this serpent is, is what their sin deserves. And they're, they're being reminded that, that, that God's wrath is, is going to be poured out on, on the serpent and on sin. And they're, and they're being reminded of these things. And, and yet, there's this amazing thing that happens. There, there's a principle of substitution. Do you see it? There are serpents biting the people. They're dying. And God says, I, I, will, I will provide a substitute serpent 
a substitution will occur. And as that is lifted up, that, that all you have to do is look and you'll be healed. That the sting of sin, the judgment, the wrath will be taken away. Isn't that amazing? The venomous destruction of sin will be removed. And, and there's nothing the people have to do. All they have to do is look. Now, you know, what's interesting about Numbers 21 is that we actually don't know who is healed and who isn't healed. And I can almost guarantee you there were people that were bitten by the venomous snakes in the wilderness who would not look in faith because they thought it was foolish and they would rather die in their sin. No, that's interesting, isn't it? It is a foolish thing, isn't it? Would you look? Would you look? Hey, I just got bitten by this venomous serpent. Now Moses is telling me that the God who supposedly redeemed us says, hey, look at this serpent, and you'll get better. Um, and yet, the bronze serpent is a type of the Lord Jesus, because, and, and here's how we get there. The Lord Jesus substitutes himself for sinners. And he, the Apostle Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin was made sin for us. Paul will say in Galatians chapter 3, Christ became a curse for us. The Apostle Peter will say in 1 Peter chapter 2, he'll say that uh, he himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Isaiah will say he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. See, see, our sin is imputed to him. He becomes the most unclean thing on the planet on the cross. Listen, don't ever try to sanitize the cross. If you try to sanitize the cross, you lose the cross. There's something offensive to that. Just like there would be something offensive to the Israelites thinking, this is foolish. Why would we look at a serpent? Why would we look at what just destroyed us? But God is saying there, there is one way of salvation. There is one way of healing, and it is, it is an offensive and foolish thing. Moses lifts up a bronze serpent, and God says, now tell the people, look at the serpent and you'll be healed. Now, Jesus speaks about himself as the Son of Man. Um, notice, he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That's, that is a, a messianic title out of Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. It, it's talking about that when the Messiah would come, when the Redeemer would come, the Son of Man would ascend to heaven to the Ancient of Days, and to him would be given a kingdom and dominion and power that his rule should be forever. And Jesus knows that's who he is his favorite title. It's his favorite way of speaking about himself. But instead of him saying, the Son of Man is going to be glorified at the right hand of the Father, he said, the Son of Man is going to be lifted up like a serpent on a pole. By the way, this means Jesus knew from the beginning of his ministry that he was going to be crucified. He knew what he had come to do. He always had that messianic consciousness. He always knew. He didn't learn that he would become the Messiah. He knew exactly why he came, and he tells us this is the epicenter. This is it. By the way, I'm not sure if there's a more powerful portion of Scripture in the whole of the New Testament than this passage and what Jesus is saying. Now, 
He says he'll be lifted up, that, that word. In Greek, it occurs four times in the Gospel of John, and, and with each time, Jesus is talking about what's going to happen to him on the cross. And in John chapter 8, he actually says, because the people don't understand who he is, they, they, they're grumbling, they don't, they don't want to hear him, they don't understand what he's saying, and he says, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. He says, when I am lifted up, then you will know that I am. By the way, we noted last week that we don't know if Nicodemus was converted at this point. And we assume he was as we get to the end of the Gospels. And I wonder if Nicodemus wasn't converted when the Son of Man was lifted up on the cross and he saw that happening in time and space. And he remembered what Jesus said to him. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And, and what Jesus is doing is fascinating. He is moving from God's provision of redemption for Israel in the wilderness to God's provision of spiritual and eternal redemption for sinners all across the globe. Now, um, I want us to consider here um, the lifting up of the Son of Man. I don't think we can understand John 3.16 properly if we don't understand the connection John 14 and 15 hold to it. So, so people have debated for centuries, what does John mean when he says, God so loved the world? And, and on one side, people say, I think that means he loves every single person savingly, and it's up to them. And on the other side are hyper-Calvinists who say uh, he only loves the elect, and by world he means elect, and, and, and who's right, and books have been written, and debates have happened, and, and uh, ad nauseum. And, and I don't think either of those things are true. I don't think that John 3.16 is saying God loves every single person on the face of the earth savingly, and it's up to them to finish the work of salvation. Neither do I think it's saying he only loves the elect. What I think John is doing, what Jesus is doing, is he is saying just as God loved Israel and gave them a way of redemption through the serpent lifted up on the pole, God in the new covenant now loves the nations— not just Jews, but also Gentiles, and has given the whole world a provision of redemption if they would look at the sun lifted up on the cross. There's a, a redemptive historical progress. Um, that doesn't diminish the love of God. In fact, it magnifies the love of God. You know, this is really interesting. So John's gospel, whenever it talks about the world, it talks about the darkness, the fallenness, the depravity, the evil. Jesus, remember, he came into the world and the world did not know him, even though it was made through him. So, so the world is painted oftentimes in John as a very, very spiritually dark, evil, wicked place. And yet that's what God loves. He loves the people who are themselves evil and sinful enough to give them a way of salvation. And that is good news because we are part of that world. I am part of that world. You are part of that world. We have been bitten by venomous serpents spiritually every day of our lives. Every time we sin. Every time we sin. We, we are tasting the bitter sting 
of the darkness of our hearts in this dark and fallen world. And yet, God so loved the world. And now I want us to consider here um, the offer. He gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, it's really interesting because when you get into debates in, in the theological realm, and, and Calvinism is obviously a heated subject for people, um, and, and you can have people erring on both sides, right? Uh, Charles Spurgeon used to say God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are like railroad tracks, that the further they seem to go down, seem to come closer, and that before the throne, we'll see how they all work together perfectly. Um, but what's interesting to me is that in the same discourse in which Jesus tells Nicodemus, there's absolutely nothing you can do to be born again. In the same discourse in which Jesus says, there's nothing you can do, the Spirit has to do it, I'm going to accomplish what's necessary for it. In the same context, there's a free offer of the gospel. The same Jesus that just said that says to Nicodemus, here's, here's the end result of the provision of redemption. Whoever believes, whoever believes is not condemned. Whoever believes has eternal life. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Um, we all know that salvation is a free gift. I would hope you know that. We all know that we can't merit it. We all know we can't do anything for it. We all know that it's freely by God's grace. I hope you know that. That's, that's the Bible's testimony everywhere, throughout every page. Um, but I wonder if we... I wonder if we have forgotten the greatness of what Jesus is saying here. Okay. In the free offer of the gospel, there is a juxtaposition. Eternal death, eternal life. Whoever believes will not perish, but will have eternal life. Now, wh what do I mean we've lost something of the greatness of that? This is amazing. We deserve hell forever. Every one of you and me deserve hell forever, eternal death. By the way, anybody that tries to tell you hell's not eternal, Jesus says it's eternal death, and you don't want to argue with Jesus. Eternal death, forever, and he meets eternal death not by bringing us back to zero and saying, get working and maybe you'll make it. He meets eternal death with eternal life. That's amazing. Is that not remarkable? What Jesus does on the cross, he takes the eternal hell on himself as an eternal being. He takes our sin on himself. He is lifted up and he says, if you just look at me, you will go from eternal death to eternal life. I mean, that's mind-blowing. That is mind-blowing. Hell forever, life forever. All because of what he does on the cross. And he offers that. And he says to us this morning, he says to us, all you have to do is look at him crucified with the eyes of faith. That's all you have to do. Beware of anyone who complicates salvation beyond that. 
you know, Charles Spurgeon the Great, uh, Prince of the Baptist, Puritan preachers, was converted as a young man. He knew a lot of theology. He knew a lot of truth. He wasn't converted. And he walked into that, that um, church uh, one day, and the pastor was out, and the, I think a deacon was just reading Isaiah over and over, look to me, look to me, all you ends of the earth and be saved, look to me. And, and, and Spurgeon said, I looked. I looked to the Lord, and I was saved. That's it. There's a story about Moody, D.L. Moody, the great evangelical uh, evangelist, and uh, there was apparently he was staying in a hotel. He was on an evangelistic tour, and he was staying in a hotel one night, and, and um, he walked outside on his porch, and he saw a man in a drunken stupor. He says, it was the worst scene I had seen. And, and, and Moody, had, Moody had committed to sharing the gospel with someone every day, and he had not shared the gospel with anyone that day. And so as the story goes, Moody said to that man as he stumbled around, I don't know what he said, like man down there, I don't know. He said, look to the Lord Jesus and be saved. And he went back in his room and he shut the door. And at one of his evangelical conferences a few days later, a man came up to him and he said, Mr. Moody, Mr. Moody, you're never going to guess what happened. The other night, he said, I was out in a drunken stupor and I, I looked up and I saw an angel. Because, you know, he probably had like a flowy gown on. I saw an angel, and he said, look to the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. And I looked and I was saved. Wow. That's what Jesus is saying, whoever believes. Um, I want us to consider, finally, the result of the sun lifted up. Now, while we take great comfort in the fact that God has provided us a perfect salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ lifted up on the cross for our sins, and while we want to be looking steadfastly to him by faith, we know that many who hear will not. Um, the same Jesus will say, broad is the way that leads to destruction, and, and many Go down it, and narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there are that find it. And yet, there are two results. Notice that Jesus says here, he, he says in verse 18, very important, whoever believes in him is not condemned. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No judgment, no fear of hell. He's taken the sting away. He's taken the sin. But then notice what Jesus says, whoever does not believe is already condemned. So, so what Jesus is saying is that by nature, the world lies condemned already, and that there will be two results uh, when this gospel is proclaimed. Some will believe, and others will not believe, and they will remain condemned. Notice Jesus explains why men will not believe. He says, Light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. Why, why wouldn't everybody believe this? Have you never thought about that? When I was a brand new Christian, I was like, why wouldn't everybody believe in Jesus? It, it's, it's, it, it's, it, it should seem too good to be true. Yes, 
Yes, as sinful as we are, that he did all that for us freely. It, it should seem overwhelmingly too good to be true. And yet, why do myriads of people not believe and rather choose to remain dead in sins under condemnation and to perish eternally? Because Jesus says men love darkness rather than light. Men love their sin, even with all the bitterness of it, more than the Savior. Now, let me, let me say this to you. I want to leave you with an encouraging thought, and then I want to apply this. Jonathan Edwards writes this. This is so beautiful. He whose arms are open to suffer to be nailed to the cross will doubtless be open as wide to embrace those for whom he suffered. I'm going to read that again. He whose arms are open to suffer to be nailed to the cross will doubtless be opened as wide to embrace those for whom he suffered. So that means no matter how much you've sinned, if the Savior was nailed to the tree for you and you're looking at him, his arms are just as wide open to receive you since he suffered for you, since he accomplished everything for you. That's awesome. If you go to Jesus, it doesn't matter how sinful you are. He will receive you. Not one sinner who goes to Jesus in the Gospels and really comes to him, looking to him as a Savior, gets turned away by him. Not one. That should give us great confidence. He's done everything. And he says, all you have to do is look. Now, if you've looked, and you are looking, praise God for his grace, but, but many of us have loved ones and friends that aren't looking. And, and what we need to do is we need to reappropriate this word, this message, and we need to be recommitted to carrying this out to those around us who are perishing. You know, I have heard, I have heard well-meaning believers say, you know, I've shared the gospel with this person. I guess they're just not going to get saved. Listen, as long as somebody has breath, they need this word. Because everybody has been stung by the venom of sin. And they need to be told to look at the sun lifted up. Because if they're not born again, this is what they need to hear in order to begin to see what God has done to bring them out of that spiritual death into spiritual life. Y'all, we have the greatest message on the planet. I mean, there's no better word. I go on the news, it's all bad news. I don't care, Fox News, CNN, I don't care, it's all bad. I will argue with you about that. It is all bad news. This is good news. And God has entrusted it to us to take it out to those around us. I wanna to talk to you this morning, also if you're here, and, and you know you have looked to the Son of Man when he was lifted up on the cross, and yet you're plagued by residual sins, and you're plagued by the guilt of falling into the same sin recurrently and wanting to be set free, and yet feeling like you're, you can't be, this is the solution. Maybe you've been redeemed, but, but you need to look again to the Son lifted up on the cross. This is not just the solution for you to get eternal life at the beginning of your Christian life, and then you stop looking. We keep looking. What do I do? 
when I've sinned grievously against God? What do I do when, I, when my conscience is marred? What do I do? I look at the sun lifted up. I've been bitten by the venom of the serpent. I look at the sun lifted up. And you never stop doing that until you're with the sun who has been lifted up to the right hand of the Father. We keep looking at him lifted up because even now he's been lifted up and we want to be with him where he is. And he says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. I hope that you'll be encouraged by this word. I hope that we will leave this place collectively with the eyes of faith looking at the son who was made sin for us, who became a curse for us, who who is that serpent on the pole, that we will look for the spiritual healing of our souls. I hope that we will be meditating afresh on what it means that we have eternal life. And I hope that we'll be zealous to carry this message to those who have not yet come to look at him. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you that you have given us such a rich word in Scripture. We thank you for the depths of your word. We thank you for the greatness of your grace. We thank you for the provision of the Lord Jesus. And we pray this morning that you would cause us to be drawn to him, that you would fix our eyes upon him. Lord Jesus, we need to be healed by you, and we pray that you would also make us agents of carrying this message to those around us who need to be healed by you. And so, Lord, please do a great work in us and cause this word to be effectual in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.